Welcome to our Terminal Tech Talk series. My name is Nabil Fahel, and I have the pleasure of kicking things off. Thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. A special shout out to our Terminal members across the Americas. Bienvenue, bienvenidos, and welcome everyone. We are thrilled to bring leaders and communities together by sharing insights and learnings on topics ranging from innovation, culture, personal growth, and more. Before we begin, I wanted to let everyone know that you can easily join the conversation by submitting a question on our website at terminal.io slash livestream if you're not already there right now. If you happen to be joining us on Facebook Live or YouTube directly, we are actively monitoring those channels. So feel free to pop in a question for the speakers there too. All Terminal Tech Talks are live streamed and, recording and recorded and the recording will be available to view at the conclusion of today's discussion. We also upload each episode as a podcast if you want to re-listen or share with a friend. Just search for Terminal Tech Talks, however you listen to podcasts. We are excited to welcome today's featured guest, Dr. Andrew Costa, who is the Chair in Clinical Epidemiology and the Research Director at the DeGroote School of Medicine at McMaster University, as well as the Research Director of the Big Data and Geriatric Models of Care Research Cluster. Basically, Dr. Costa and his team use big data to inform and evaluate health innovations, which is exactly what the world needs right now. Our moderator today is Graham Campbell, and Graham is a research coordinator on Dr. Costa's team, as well as a talented musician. Graham and Dr. Costa, Graham and Dr. Costa's office is right across the street from one of our terminal campuses in Canada. So it's, uh, especially, uh, it's especially a privilege to invite one of our neighbors into our series. On behalf of Terminal and our entire communities worldwide, I'd like to thank Dr. Costa and Graham for joining us remotely for this timely and important conversation about using big data to fight COVID-19. I will now pass it over to Graham, who will introduce his team's work and Dr. Costa. Graham. Thanks very much for that introduction, Nabil. And uh, thanks again for having us tonight. It's uh, really great to be here. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, um, you know, um, both uh, Dr. Costa and I are uh, have offices kind of across the street from the, the terminal buildings um, at this campus here in downtown Kitchener. And, uh, you know, it's actually been one of the uh, one of the strengths of our uh, our team to be able to, um, you know, have such great, uh, have such great neighbors and to uh, be able to, you know, collaborate with, uh, um, with places like Terminal. Um, yeah, so let me just, uh, let me just actually start out again by, uh, maybe I'll back it up here and just kind of talk a little bit about uh, who we are and then, um, 
uh, you know, and then we can uh, kind of go from there. But uh, like Nabil mentioned, um, you know, we uh, uh, we mainly uh, work as the uh, the big data and geriatrics uh, models of care uh, research group. Um, we uh, we also have um, you know we that leads us into doing a lot of kind of um, educational stuff, a lot of research. Uh, we're based um, you know all over the all over the province, uh, all over the country, and uh, you know we have quite a few members of our team. Um, you know, all over, uh, all over the world. So I think that's another really interesting connection that we have, um, uh, you know, kind of being in the, in the terminal space and, uh, having a team where, um, you know, doing things like remote work is, uh, is such an important way to, uh, to leverage things for us. Um, but anyway, without any further uh, rambling on my part, um, let's bring in, um, Dr. Andrew Costa. He's, uh, he's our fearless leader and, um, uh, you know what? Maybe actually, Andrew, I'll uh, instead of rambling on about your titles, I'll uh, I'll let you um, give us like a lowdown on on who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Graham, um, and uh, thanks to Terminal for having us in this uh, private slash public conversation. Um, a lot of fun to talk to you, Graham, because now that uh, with all the COVID happenings, etc., we're not in the same office a lot. Not that we were tremendously a lot, but. Uh, this gives us the opportunity to chat about research stuff, um, you know, in a more long form way. So it's fun. Uh, I'm um, a assistant professor in the School of Medicine at McMaster University in the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact. And um, basically we're, um, the department is um, kind of a historically important department. It was founded by somebody who um, founded the concepts around evidence-based medicine. David Sackett, and um, who then went on to Oxford University. So we're proud of that heritage. Um, in addition to that, I have a few hats that I wear that are, in the end, as you know, Graham, all come in at the same place, which is usually around data, older adults, and, and health systems. And, um, you know, that's the uh, cycle chair in clinical epidemiology and biostatistics, um, the research director at the School of Medicine Waterloo Regional Campus, which is situated in Kitchener-Waterloo, you know, our Silicon Valley North, I think, as we refer to it. Um, great tech community with Terminal, we're part of uh, a wonderful group there that we, we get to work with and we're lucky to be able to work with. And then um, I'm uh, the research director at the St. Joseph's Healthcare uh, Center for Integrated Care, which is just a um, short drive in Hamilton. And it all kind of mixes in. It, um, it's about data, it's about seniors and older adults, and uh, we point our efforts to various systems, long-term care, home care, hospitals, uh, and have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know that, um, I mean, you know, this kind of actually maybe fun, leads right? us into, <laughs> what's that? I said it is fun, right? It is fun. Yeah. You know what? Just because, uh, just because we're on the air here with a couple hundred people. Um, no, you know what? It is. It's great. And uh, <laughs> it's one of the things actually that, uh, one of the things that I, I think, um, you know, if I can just start rambling right away, that uh, is so great about uh kind of being able to work down here in this in this area in this space is um so uh you know like you mentioned um you know we do a lot of stuff around um older adults we do a lot of stuff around different models of care uh and we do a lot of stuff around um you know using data and using uh, education to try and um uh to try and help out different public health situations so um you know 
being being in this location at this campus um, in this kind of like Silicon Valley North, like you were saying, is uh, has been a really interesting place because it's led to a lot of these really cool collaborations. Um, you know, like the fact that uh, that I'm sitting here uh, in the in the, the terminal offices uh, right now uh, using their very stable internet connection um, to uh, to talk to you here. So it's been fantastic and. Um, and actually, it, it kind of brings me to, uh, I guess maybe, uh, maybe you know, my first my first two points. Uh, firstly, I think we're going to establish right away that, um, uh, you know, what we're going to refer to each other as. Uh, I might have a problem with calling you Dr. Costa or remembering to do that. Because uh, yeah, you always do, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I think. I think maybe that kind of speaks to uh, the informal um, or the conversational, uh, you know, kind of tone that I hope this can have. So, um, uh, yes, please. Yeah. So, in saying that, in saying that, um, yeah, uh, you know, and now I'm addressing kind of the the folks watching. Um, you know, like Nabil mentioned, we're uh, we are happy to uh, to engage with uh, you know questions and to to talk about some stuff. Um, you know, if if we're not uh, experts in that subject area will be the first to tell you, but uh, I think uh, I think we can have some fun and and talk about these things regardless. So, um, yeah, uh, you know what, Andrew. Speaking of kind of the uh, what you were just kind of mentioning about all those different hats you wear, um, you know, that's a bunch of different campuses, it's a bunch of different hospitals, a bunch of different buildings. Um, you know, obviously we're in a time right now where a lot of those things are closed down. Uh, a lot of those folks are working from home and a lot of, you know, universities and academic centers are, uh, are working from home too, but, you know, we're in a spot where, uh, you know, research has to go on, innovation has to go on. Um, we have to kind of continue to solve problems, but, um, you know, how are, how are you seeing that happen right now with a lot of these, with a lot of these closures, especially with all this hats you wear? Yeah. So it's, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting trip. I mean, I came back from, uh, an overseas trip, hearing the news around COVID, and um, my wife, who's a nurse practitioner, was sort of following the news a bit more closely, with a bit more concern. I was, um, she was with us, and we had a bit of a family trip associated with it. And I was sort of thinking, oh, this is just another thing. Who knows? I wasn't paying attention, mind you. And when we came home, um, coming through France, that's when, you know, just basically behind our footsteps is when the pandemic was really taking shape. And uh, so I came back and within that first week, it went from um, business as usual to the campus being closed. And so at McMaster University, we have, we're one of the most research intensive health science universities in Canada and indeed in the world. And it's anyone's guess as to how long this will last. And it's changed things uh, for the foreseeable future. So we're currently closed. Um, our academic hospitals are operating on a very different kind of capacity. Now, for the universities, it's meant that um, classes are canceled. It's meant that our research facilities are more or less closed, except for those that are of a critical nature, um, biorepositories, freezers need to be kept cold and these sorts of things. But we're slowly making our way back in into phase one for, for people that had uh, experiments and have lab work to do. Um, they're going to get in a bit sooner than folks like us who do more data work, can work from home. I don't I don't anticipate that we'll be going back anytime soon. Our hospitals are, sure. um, you know, they're very different places now. They were 
we ramped up like many hospitals in North America and around the world for um, a big influx of uh, COVID-19 patients. That hasn't materialized. So I think we've done our job around social distancing as many places have. And in fact, we've got sort of the opposite situation where you know there's crickets in our hospital wards and our emergency departments. And um, the big fear, and it's actually true, we're seeing data is that a lot of a lot of people are withholding going to the emergency department and we're seeing um, an increase in rates of um, heart attacks, et cetera, for uh, diseases that are left uncontrolled because people aren't really coming in as they usually would. It's changed oh, it's, everything. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like um, it sounds like it's something that's, uh, you know, like you say, it's a, it's a different playing field, right? Um, you know, we hear a lot of people talk now about kind of new normals and um, and things like that. So. It sounds like it's something that um, that we're just kind of negotiating on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, there's. A, I wanted to actually jump back to to something that you had mentioned there about about some of the um, some of the work that the group does. Um, you know, I think it might be. I think it might be a little bit helpful. Maybe um, you know we can dive into some of that stuff a little bit more specifically later. But um, uh, you know, maybe it's something helpful. You know, we've been talking a little bit about big data. And um, kind of, you know, how that how that works. Um, but if we can back up for a second, I know it took me, um, you know, it took me a little bit to understand what uh, what that actually means. So, um, can we uh, can we take a, a pause for a second and um, and can you just kind of uh, uh, give me a little uh, explanation, like I'm, uh, you know, explain like I'm five, kind of, uh, you know, what is this? Was this capital B, capital D, big data uh, that you know that, that that we work with? Yeah, and so um, you know, big data's got some uh, pretty known definitions. Usually, it's described by you know these three or four V concepts, and uh, it's it's useful way to thinking about it. It's um, you know, big data is sort of a phenomenon, and so it defies a little bit of definition. Um, it's basically a reality of our our digital existence, and it's a byproduct of it. Um, as well as sort of continues to shape it. And, you know, when you think of big data, you think of uh, number one, volume, just a lot of information, a lot of zeros and ones flowing um, because we have digital systems, devices that just basically in our healthcare system, which I'll focus on, but, you know, really in everything else, they create data as a byproduct. And so we're seeing more and more of that. It's cheaper to store that data, to host that data. We're getting better um, tools to analyze those data. Um, and so, you know, uh, volume is a big thing. Uh, what's also, you know, very good is uh, in depth defining it is uh, the velocity of the data. So not only do we have big sources of data, but they're keep streaming in faster and faster. We have more real time data sources, which gives us a lot more possibilities. I know we'll discuss that with respect to COVID and how we are or not tapping those data. Uh, then variety, we have um, a lot of types of data. We have structured data, things that we can analyze pretty easily. Unstructured data like text mining in healthcare, that's a lot. It's really common to our frustration around the fact that uh, physicians, nurses, everyone likes to chart using their notes. And um, it's very hard to, there's so much knowledge there, so much investment there. It's hard to pull that out. So that's that's sort of the challenge and the opportunity around variety and then veracity. Anybody who uses large data sources always has to consider, you know, how good is this data? Uh, what is it telling us? Is it, is it biased? Is it even useful? And that's always an ongoing conversation because there's a big sort of like a loss function on all the data that's created, even though we're storing it for a day when hopefully it'll come to good use. 
So that's big data, right. but essentially it's kind of like, uh, it's big compared to what we used to have. That's big data. Right. Um, so you mentioned a couple things about uh, that actually I'd, I'd kind of like to pick up on given um, given like the space that we we're, we're in right now. Um, you know, I know that um, our team does a lot of work with, and you specifically, Andrew, do a lot of work with um, uh, with folks like developers, with um, folks that are uh, data architects um, and uh, design that kind of infrastructure. Um, you know, obviously we use all of this data in healthcare system. Um, you know, do you think um, maybe we maybe we can uh, maybe we can kind of uh, talk about you know some of the uh, some of the challenges or some of the opportunities um, you know that that uh, present itself in this, and that we can then kind of look at uh, you know how we end up predicting things like this and how uh, um, you know how we try and make these models. Yeah, and so our big, you know, from, from the perspective of someone that works in healthcare systems, um, you know, I'm using and we're using a lot of um, secondary data that's created by health systems, EMR systems, hospitals, et cetera. Um, and those are sort of common type data is like um, anytime that someone enters something in a chart, clicks a box, um, data are abstracted from that, either electronic, you know, more or less electronically as we get better the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity emerging is basically having EMR systems that are more digital. Um, many systems remain basically glorified um, PDFs, or if you look into a yeah. medical chart, it's still quite common that what you see is essentially like a bank of, you know, 40 PDF pages. That's changing though pretty rapidly. And even around the margins of that, we have pretty good big data uh, where we understand diagnostic patterns, admission patterns, on a more of a meta level, uh, which is what we call a metadata. And uh, from that, uh, we can understand a lot about health behaviors, health systems, do a lot of prediction algorithms. Um, and so we've got, those are our sort of common sources of data. There's emerging very interesting sources of data that's flipping everything in, in healthcare analytics and will continue to. Basically, it used to be that all of the the data that we had about healthcare systems was in the system itself. It was owned by hospitals, owned by health systems providers. That's changing pretty rapidly with the advent of um, health apps, um, in-home technologies. People are more and more able to get um, uh, track their own health, uh, control their own health data, uh, contribute to their own health data like their Fitbits and et cetera. Um, and increasingly, they're able to do pretty sophisticated diagnostics that were only possible in emergency departments uh, and hospitals. They're able to do that in their home by themselves because the cost function for those devices and, and, and storing them has come down just tremendously. Kind of like um, yeah. the, the same impact as like cell phones with the computing revolution. It's those devices and um, systems associated are bringing that to healthcare. So we're, we're rapidly moving towards a future where someone like me that accesses health data to, to create tools for providers, doctors, nurses, increasingly we're gonna be creating it more for people. And where it used to be that your doctor or your hospital had your health information, maybe you could get a hold of it, maybe you couldn't. Increasingly, it's gonna be more people having more information than their physicians, than the hospital they're in. Um, and it'll be up to them to be able to share it with their healthcare providers, maybe more than one, which will really shift the power dynamics. So we're moving pretty quickly to that yeah. future. 
Yeah, it does seem it seems like a case where you know we're almost uh, living in the future. So in that case, if we have all this data, um, if we have everybody's uh, everyone's you know uh, app data, this kind of thing, where does the difficulty come in predicting super rare events like this? You know, where do we uh, how, how do we how do we make these predictions in this case when we're talking about you know things more specifically like COVID? Well, I mean, like, if you if we go into COVID, and I guess let's dive right in, if we don't know, it's a, well, I guess it's important to say that we, there's a lot that's unknown about COVID, because it is still so new. Not only is it a, um, a new disease that we don't know a lot about, but how it spreads through a community and the various people that are involved in, in helping to research that, it's sort of a new phenomenon. Uh, it's been an amazing thing to witness in a world where um, a lot of researchers who are who weren't infectious disease researchers um, are pointing themselves towards COVID and trying to produce things that are useful in either helping to uh, prevent outbreaks or to manage outbreaks in patient populations. And uh, it's been amazing to witness. We're, we're a good example of that. Um, in our team, uh, we haven't done infectious disease research for, it's not in our history. Typically what we do is we look at uh, transition patterns among patients and we try and predict outcomes like future hospitalizations. So the stuff that we traditionally have done is we create algorithms that become part of EMR systems that help clinicians make decisions about individual patient cases. Right. And so we're using data on everybody to help make decisions on particular individuals. And, you know, we use these large sources of, of, of data on people's health uh, to make those decisions. And, you know, we use some pretty routine methods and we use some um, more fancier machine learning methods um, bridging towards artificial intelligence. Uh, and we're, you know, so, we're now we're pointing ourselves towards COVID because um, ground zero in, in the fight against COVID and the influences of COVID has been towards older adults, you know, pretty much uh, amongst the most vulnerable in our society. And uh, for us who do work in care of older adults, um, it's a responsibility that we've collectively, all of us, I think, in the, in the field have taken on to try and uh, join the effort. And so we've, we've done a couple of important things towards that effort um, ourselves. It's tough. Um, why, from a data perspective, why is COVID a difficult thing to track? Like we've yeah, seen that. That's actually. Uh, yeah, sorry. I'm just going to say that's. That's kind of what I'm wondering is, is, can you speak to that a bit a little bit? Like, why is that such a, why is it such a difficult situation to understand? You know, that, uh, I think that's kind of a very interesting question. Part of it is how it's played out. So when we, when, when the pandemic first started, there was projections around death rates and need for ventilators and so forth. And, uh, those projections have largely overshot the reality and it's no surprise because, um, as Yogi Berra said, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. And uh, in science, we're typically not very good at it. And that's because um, we're in all those predictions, you're trying to predict human behavior. And it's just a very difficult concept. Because as soon as you predict something, and that is known, let's say in this case, COVID being uh, a looming crisis to you know, moving through countries, then immediately society and people react with that knowledge, which changes the underlying dynamics that you had built in your model. And so it's kind of like playing a sport. You know, we say in Canada, you know, you don't move where the puck is, you move where the puck's going to be. And right. uh, maybe 
it's hard enough to do in hockey. It's very difficult to do in science and in population health. And uh, that's continued to get harder. So uh, one thing to know about COVID, uh, I think probably, I mean, for us, the most single important thing is that it is a local phenomenon at a global scale. And what I mean by that is that um, because we've been largely very good at um, social distancing, really across countries, uh, mm-hmm. that very, very positive um, occurrence has made science and COVID more and more challenging. Um, and what I mean by that is that there's a lot of noise in the associated data. Give you an example. Um, you can look at, so in the evidence, we have a lot of case series data from heavily affected countries in Europe and in Asia. And what we note is that we're not seeing the same sort of phenomenon that they're seeing in their countries. Now, on a crude basis, we are. Those that are sicker, more comorbidities, older, are more likely to be vulnerable to developing serious disease and death. But um, at a a more granular level, those data don't really match what we're seeing in terms of the people that are being hospitalized in our regions. Um, Mm. And so we're not seeing sort of the same flow. So the local situation is different from region to region is what we're realizing where we're seeing longer length of stay in some regions versus others, younger people being admitted versus older people. And that's because um, it's actually a rare event. Um, we don't know how, if it's a rare event to, to basically be infected by the SARS COVID-2 um, um, infection. We, we, but we know that it's a fairly rare event that someone develops enough symptoms that they're hospitalized. And that that's usually when we, we tend to see cases. And so, right. That's a rare, it's a rare event. It's essentially rare events or stochastic modeling, meaning you're modeling the, a lot of noise and not a lot of signal. If we had a huge outbreak, we would know a lot more right. about the, the disease spread because we would have a much larger sample to do analytics on. Right now, we have very few. I'll give you an example. We have in our hospitals, at the moment surrounding us, census of, of about 60 patients in very large academic hospitals, which is not a lot. And so it's very difficult to generate knowledge on 60 cases per hospital. And uh, it's also very difficult to, if you boil up those data at a country level or state level or provincial level, it's difficult to actually translate that learning into local health city they're seeing is so different because um, to get sick is almost like a chance occurrence. It's by definition very difficult to predict because we're doing pretty well um, at social isolation. So that's that's the challenge, you know. And um, you know, in our region in Kitchener, where we have a lot of tech companies, as you said, we have a population yeah. of about five hundred thousand. And in our region, we've had uh, something like uh, just over two hundred hospitalized. Right. And in and of itself that's about four times what surrounding regions have had. So in Kitchener, where we live, um, we have four times the rate. It's not at all clear as to why that, that is the case. Um, not at all. And uh, it wasn't like we had a big festival and the surrounding communities did not. And so we're seeing more cases, we're seeing different cases, and we have no idea why. Interesting. I mean, you know, interesting and terrifying. Um, but, you know, in that case, um, you know what do we what do we do from that point then in terms of um in terms of tracking is this something um 
you know, like how, how can we navigate some of these challenges? Is this something where we can, um, where we can do some public health uh, tracing? Um, you know, what about some of the, the resources that, that your team, um, you know, our team uh, has, been, uh, has been developing around this as kind of a response to using big data to shape some of our responses? It's meant that we've had to collaborate a lot. And so, as you know, Graham, in our region, uh, or our surrounding regions, you know, we live, um, if folks are familiar with Toronto, we live south of Toronto in a very, very busy region of southern Ontario that basically uh, surrounds a very large lake called Lake Ontario. And it goes essentially from sort of like Toronto all the way to Niagara Falls towards the U.S. border. Um, and in this, you know, few regions, you know, we have about 2 million individuals living. And so we've had to collaborate with across the regions to be able to pool data in order to um, have the data resource to be able to do the analytics and create tools um, to make decisions about uh, the spread of the disease as well as how we're managing those who get sick. Uh, an example of that is we created the uh, Courage Registry. Um, so it's a coronavirus registry of all admitted um, uh, patients who are confirmed with COVID and all individuals who go through a hospital's emergency department with mild symptoms and are identified either afterwards or during as having COVID, but were discharged home. And so what we're doing across those um, hospital systems is capturing all of those cases and pooling it. And we're working with the, so that's an example of pooling at a regional level so that we have enough information. Uh, we're collecting very detailed things from from the charts like uh, onset history, um, uh, all the uh, admitting labs, daily lab information, uh, pathogen testing, symptoms, comorbidities, um, really everything that you could possibly get. And a group um, uh, parallel to us is actually collecting all the biospecimens from those patients and creating a biobank. And we'll link the data afterwards. Um, so this is the data that we're collecting. No, no worries. I'll I'll just say a few more. The data that we're collecting is yeah. being um, so at an international level and Canadian level, we we have to do the same things. And so the data that we're collecting is on a common standard that was developed by the World Health Organization. And so all the way up, we're contributing those data to uh, as high as the World Health Organization. We're pooling the data. Um, so it's really important that that we do that and create these these platforms. Uh, Right. Then it's important that we link it. So thinking about big data. It, so now we have the outcome. Who is getting sick? What is their disease course? And what we really need to be able to know is like, identify those who do get sick and why and do some of that electronic contract chasing. And to do that, we have to take these data that really were hard won from hospital systems um, and clinics and uh, pool that and link it to the large population level data. So all of the uh, public records for all individuals living in our province, which is equivalent to a U.S. state, um, which includes all past hospital records, all information we know about where they live, um, mm -hmm. uh, their, their primary care physician, um, their local environment in terms of their social economic status, um, their race and gender characteristics, um, new Canadians, uh, really everything there is to know to basically reach across all the different data sets that we have on individuals in the province. And um, in this case, very safely, um, be able to do analytics to help us understand uh, 
who is being most affected by the disease uh, in the general community. Right. Yeah, and you know what? That's exactly what I was going to ask was about how that how that scales up, kind of how that tracking scales up internationally, and how um, um, and how that affects the the community. So, um, you know, that does uh, that does actually kind of bring me a little bit around to uh, there was a couple points there that that you touched on that that I was hoping that we could uh, we could maybe quickly touch on before we get into some of these questions. Um, you know that. Um, that we can uh, we can start um, answering from from some folks, but um, you know I'd like to um, go back and just touch on something that you mentioned about kind of the importance of um, you know distributed work uh, distributed work teams remote work teams um, as we navigate this kind of thing, and then I'd also like to um, you know flow into that. Um, it seems like we were just kind of almost getting into that natural discussion about you know, the place where a lot of places are at right now where we're looking at opening up and we're looking at how to do that safely. And, you know, there's a lot of unknowns there. Um, so if that's too, yeah. not too, if it's not too much, maybe I'll just throw that all on your plate. You know, I guess remote work, anybody who's tackling this issue is having to do it remotely, which has, you know, created new challenges. For those of us that work in the data sciences, uh, like our group, it's been not too much of a challenge. We were I mean, we joke that we were sort of pandemic ready already because um, most of us connect through Zoom. We've got team members as far away as Vancouver and the people that work for us as far away as I think now probably the Canary Islands, um, one person anyway. Mm -hmm. And so we're used to meeting on Zoom and it's sort of like a running joke on the team. Although I remember saying like, you know, as soon as they become a public company, you know, we should definitely invest. But it's yet another trend that I've <laughs> missed, even though I've got it early. And which is why sure they say poor and hungry doctor it's probably true and so, sure um, yeah so we we missed investing so in been, zoom and we been, missed uh, yeah go ahead sorry no it hasn't stopped us it's, it's basically the, the you know jokes aside and so you know and we're people are working very hard on it so we're you know i have chats with people in the ministry of health you know at 10 o'clock at night on a sunday um all kinds of wacky things and all through, you know, all kinds of products, you know, for people to connect and uh, it works pretty well. But you mentioned about reopening and um, the big challenge there is that, um, you know, because we've had, because things have been pretty stochastic in terms of like um, cases, what's been driving cases and that we still have a huge amount of unknowns, mostly because we've been so, we know how to connect the data. We know we need to, we've been slow to do it. That would help us and it's increasingly getting better. But uh, in most places throughout the world, there aren't the data structures and systems in place to respond to a rapidly evolving pandemic like COVID. Um, and so that puts us behind the eight ball and we're in a situation in most places where we're opening up without having very good monitoring systems for cases. And so it's mm -hmm. well known that we're generally not doing a good job around testing. And so, you know, I mentioned before that we're collecting cases of individuals that are getting sick and those we know, and we're capturing them, getting better at capturing them, uh, all of their characteristics, their disease course, how well they do when they're discharged from the hospital. But we don't know the denominator. And what I mean by that yeah. is that we don't know those that are 
um, infected, but don't develop symptoms. That's because we haven't built in most places, the kind of contact tracing, we haven't had the capacity to do it and testing that we need. And what would it look like? Uh, it's well known. People have, have mentioned it. You know, we need to be, have an active approach to testing, you know, going to workplaces and doing a blitz of testing, going to places where people congregate and doing a blitz of testing to try and really discover and find out where the disease is and where it's hiding. If we had that information and a better sense of that information, we could develop better models to understand um, conversion into um, severe illness and where we're likely to see the most um, outbreaks. Right now, mm. all we can tell is that those places with higher, places that make a mistake and in unsafe ways, they're at definite higher risk. We see that. Um, and places where it's more difficult, um, high density areas, like major urban centers, they're gonna have, they're gonna be the source of waves. And again, that's an example of COVID being highly localized. It's very likely that we'll see new cases in places in some cities where they've made mistakes or they've got a density that puts them at a disadvantage. And in other places, we just won't see it. Hmm. Yeah, it's um it's it seems like it's a you know, on one hand it's an interesting situation, on one hand it's a troubling situation, and uh on the third hand, um we really have to wait and see how things develop week by week. Um well that's uh yeah, thanks so much for, for that comment. And actually, that does lead me into uh, a question that we have from uh, uh, from someone that's been watching. Um, this is a question from uh, uh, Red Amancio. And uh, the question is, uh, based on the data, uh, is it safe to reopen stores, schools, etc. in Canada um, by June? And, uh, you know, I figured that kind of linked up to just what we were speaking about just now. Um, What's your, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's a big question and um, I, no one knows, although there's going to be a lot of opinions. Mine's no better than anyone else. And, you know, it, they say it takes a, a lot of knowledge to realize, you know, how uh, uninformed or how ignorant you are. And so um, we've done some, we've done a piece of work around COVID analytics. And uh, based on that experience, I'd say it's, it's too, it's very difficult to know. And we're kind of playing out an experiment because we don't have the natural advantage of a jurisdiction that's opened up um, in, and that we're able to understand what's happened from it. The part of the problem is, is that the incubation period of the disease is such that we will only see a spike in cases, something like three or four weeks after there's been some serious moves towards opening up. And so we, we don't know until we or others try. And of course, there's tremendous economic pressure um, to open up behind it. So it's, it's tenuous. The, the most important thing I think that we can do is prepare ourselves by uh, bolstering our public health resources and um, our analytic capacity so that our testing capacity so that we can understand when maybe things are going awry sooner. And mm -hmm. as we experiment with opening up, we get better and better at it. And we're able to look back um, on uh, good examples and bad examples with evidence to be able to know that they were good examples or bad examples of opening up and not just chance occurrences. Right. Um, 
you know, where we have an easier time, it's probably a good example to demonstrate, where we have an easier time understanding spread characteristics is, is where things have gone out of control. So mm. this strikes home for us. So for us, uh, and our most important population and the most, most affected by COVID is uh, older adults. And it's particularly true for people that are living in nursing homes. And so right from the start of this crisis, where did it really start in the United States? It started, I mean, the, the attention to it and the serious cases were around Washington nursing homes. And here in Canada, uh, well, in the United States, I think um, nursing home or care home deaths account for about 40% of all COVID deaths. I believe that's the case. Um, in Canada, it's more like 70% of all deaths. And uh, that's been uh, a tragedy, a total tragedy, because we were um, largely unprepared for it. And it's exposed a lot of problems in North America, including Canada, around um, the system of long-term care and care homes. Uh, the, to demonstrate the point that we sort of need enough data to, to have an understanding. Uh, however, we know a lot about risk and we know and we're learning more and more because we have those outbreaks to learn from. Um, and so it's sort of a, a sad example that we have so much information. But I'll give you an example. We, we recently worked with um, very hardworking folks in the Ministry of Health, you know, working seven days a week, 12 hours, um, support some of their analytical capacity to look at what's what at a nursing home level is associated with risk of outbreak. And if there's an outbreak, the size of the outbreak, according to the number of cases and the number of deaths. Um, we have enough cases and enough examples to be able to do that and understand it so far anyway, pretty conclusively. And we've learned some important things about how facilities are designed and how that influences risk um, and how community spread, no matter how small, so community incidents, new cases in a community, how well um, that predicts an outbreak in the surrounding long-term care facilities. And if that occurs, how bad those will be according to the characteristics of each home. And that's been very important because right now we're in a state where we're using that information, um, our public health authorities are, to design targeting systems so that they can in advance know depending on the scenario, which facilities are at greater risk. And so which ones they really need to focus on because we have about 632 in our province and no place has the resources to um, have big interventions at all facilities. And so right. now we know which ones to target and we know more and more day by day. Yeah, we don't quite know that at the community level. We just know that at the yeah. nursing home level because we've had such a bad outbreak. Yeah, interesting. So I guess it's kind of, you know, we, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of the answer to this come back to, you know, we need to see how it, how it looks next week and the week after that and the week after that. Um, so yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. Um, I do have another question here, a really interesting question from uh, Alex uh, Ionofsky. And Alex asks, which remote health monitoring technology um, is the most promising for tracking and predicting health outcomes and which might be the most overhyped? So let me, you know, add to this. I'll add to this that, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure uh, 
I'm not I'm not sure actually you know I'll just leave this to you what are your thoughts on this the, uh, it's still so new the the field of remote monitoring and uh, mm-hmm. we're in we're in a very infantile stage and I don't think it's because the machines don't work it's because the humans working the machines don't work um, mm-hmm. I'll give you I'll give you an example so the machines are efficient it's the human beings that are less efficient um, and there's also this constant problem of calibration. So right. uh, you have humans are always the rate limiters, right? So your phone works faster than your brain does, and so you're you're the you're you're the throttle. You're what's slowing down information from various sources being in your brain because you can't manage it. Now imagine a health system with fixed resources. There's only so many doctors, so many nurses so many personal support workers, so many people to respond to other human beings in need. Um, they're already busy, by the way. Um, they can right. be more efficient, certainly the case, but they're already working uh, 40 or more hours a week. And if you asked all of them, they tell you that they're busy. Now input remote monitoring devices. And it sounds like it's a wonderful thing. And it is actually that um, uh, something that someone would have in their home would alert a healthcare provider or a health system or a hospital or a primary care group. The problem is, is that um, those events would have occurred and they would not have been alerted. And so it creates, it creates too many alerts, uh, too many false positives, or even just true positives that it overwhelms the system pretty quickly. Um, Interesting. And so, so the, the, here's think- a good example. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Like um, uh, it's, it's well known. Um, that people who have cardiac surgery, when they are discharged and they go home, they continue to have um, sort of like mini heart attacks, some of them do, that are barely detectable. Now, you can maybe create a device that um, detects, you can, troponins, and uh, will trigger a cardiologist, and that would be a very good thing, except there aren't enough cardiologists and people in their team to be able to respond to all those cases that they otherwise would not have known. Um, so super important, but we're learning how to use them. Uh, a lot of them hold promise, particularly the ones that um, are easier to use. Uh, you know, they, they hold the most promise. It's important to know that uh, these systems need to be integrated though. Uh, if they stand alone by themselves and they just do uh, one purpose, uh, versus being giving a suite of diagnostics, they're going to be a lot less used. The cost function is just so high to use them. So I, I, it's a great question. I don't have anything specific around um, particular devices, but there there are many that are promising. Brilliant. Okay, well, um, in that case, Francesca uh, Maya has a question here about um, how do you deal with false information and numbers in the case uh, the government doesn't post real numbers on one hand and on the other in the case when there is no real testing. Um, does that does that come through clearly? Yeah, and it's, um, so I'll tackle the last thing first. When there's no real testing, it's that problem that I mentioned, which is that we don't understand the underlying denominator. And so we don't know, we don't know a true incidence rate. And that's why you get, if you're, if you're following the news, uh, there's always a lot of suspicion and, and um, lack of knowledge around 
you know, what is the true death rate for COVID? Right. Uh, and what was it that we expected out of information from East Asia versus what it is today? And we still, amazingly, don't have a very good handle on it because we don't know the true denominator of those infected. We only really are able to ascertain, and even always not perfectly, the numerator of those that are severely ill and those that die. And even that has a little bit of complications. So then you say, uh, right. you asked about uh, untrustworthy data from sources around death rates. Uh, I'd say sure. that uh, they're, they're difficult to capture. So how do you capture death rates? Usually it's still a manual process. There's no magic where you're able to, um, in a data streaming way, understand uh, true death cases. Someone needs to manually interpret the death as a COVID death and enter it into a database that needs to be collated uh, and brought to a central location. And that's currently how it's done. And so it's a very human process still. Uh, it always will be. And because we're new uh, at this process, uh, the data isn't always perfect. I'll give you an example in where we've seen a lot of deaths in nursing homes and care facilities. Uh, that relies on reporting from the facilities. Uh, until such time as we have coroner's data uh, and assess data that happens usually sometime later. And the difficulty with those data is that when you look at count data, sometimes there can be errors or there can be double counting. What if somebody was transferred to a hospital and died there and not in the facility? Who's tracking that death? When they're tracking it, are they double counting it? Or are they failing to count it because uh, the facility doesn't include it in the deaths that occurred in their facility? So that's an example of nitty gritty that can sometimes lead to inaccuracies. But I'd say um, overall, rest assured, because um, from a data analytics standpoint, that's a little bit of noise in the data, but it's not something that um, changes the picture of what we're understanding. Our biggest problem is, is not knowing the numerator, excuse me, the denominator of cases and not having right. a good sense of how that works. Right. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That was a great explanation. Um, and so this actually leads me into a great question by Daniel Austin. And Daniel asks, what are practical things that you, Andrew, have changed in how you are behaving differently today uh, beyond the obvious of sheltering at home? Yeah, I think I'm, like a lot of people, a lot more aware of... Uh, well, I cherish my social connections that much more. That's one thing. Um, but I'm also a lot more cautious of them. You know, I have the experience where um, a lot of the work that I can do and always was can be a lot remote. And so I have no need like some people to um, head out every day in a vehicle and go to a place of work because my place of work can be a little bit almost anywhere. Obviously, I prefer it to be my university office with the team, but um, we, can, we can make do pretty well um, with what we've got. So for me, it's been, um, uh, I mean, this is sort of trivial, but issues like not touching my face, although I probably touched it 10 times and I've, I've chatted with you, you know, washing hands, which I was always pretty good about. Um, I have family members that, uh, reinforce that. Um, and when I do go and have to set out to do things like, um, you know, we're all doing more handy things around the house or trying to be handy around the house. To the hardware sure. store and so forth. I'm very cautious about touching things. 
and where I'm putting my hands and that I'm having hand sanitizer or, or washing them. Um, masks are, be are becoming more and more reinforced. And so to the extent that I think I'm going to be in, in closer proximity to people, I'll wear the mask. Where I'm very careful and where I implore people to be very careful is around uh, people that they think are going to be at higher risk, like older adults. And so I interact a lot with my neighbors that are older adults, uh, actually very older adults, but you know, pretty spry for older adults. So I'm hoping it's something in the water in the neighborhood and our wells here. But uh, they, I'm very cautious around them um, because uh, they're a higher risk group. And I would implore people to do the same. It's really important that you connect, but don't touch. And so phone calls to neighbors and families uh, and uh, conversations at very safe social distances are, are really important. Um, but um, right. be very wary. It's very easy, particularly when it's good weather, which we've just experienced in Canada from some folks connecting. Maybe you've always had it. Lucky you. Uh, you forget easy. So um, don't forget. Fair enough. Great advice. Thank you so much. Uh, I have another question here from Ria Sen. And Ria asks, uh, if you were in charge of public policy today, how would you approach the situation around balancing opening up the economy versus a more cautious approach? Yeah, so you're getting beyond, you know, things that researchers like myself love to comment about, but I'll, um, I'll venture a guess and I'll, I'll bring it closer to home for, for myself. I think, um, I think I proceed probably cautiously and in a phased manner um, because um, it's important. We have no choice but to uh, start a little bit and where we don't think that we're going to have a treatment right away or a vaccine right away, um, we have to you know, move safely. I think it's being accomplished in most places. And um, that's obvious because uh, the projections didn't come true. And it's not because the projections were horribly flawed and we were fooled. That's not the case. It's because those were possible and we acted to, to mitigate it. Um, it was always going to be temporary and we were always going to be stuck with this hard problem of opening back up and the need to open back up. Uh, it's really important that as societies, we place a lot of emphasis in our platforms to be able to track uh, COVID so that we know early and we can learn from mistakes and, and obviously detect mistakes sooner. So things that we haven't gotten around to, um, it's time to get around to with incredible speed. So we've always had the problem of not sharing data because of um, really important legislation, but also because people have just been unwilling to share information. That's really important that we do that now across all of our health systems, because one information source says nothing on its own. Together, it, it's exponentially valuable, particularly in this case. Right. And we have to get on this boring work that maybe some of you listening are aware of, of making our health information systems all speak a common language. Because right. as I said, we have a very local problem at a global scale. For us to understand anything, we have to be speaking the same language and have all of our systems um, aligned. And what I mean by that is imagine the boring thing, which is you go to your physician and uh, you see one, you see another, and the data is not following you, you keep getting asked the same questions over and over again. That's at an individual patient level. At a system level, that creates a big problem because we can't merge data because they're different data. 
differently structured data. And that causes a big problem. It makes this huge investment that we have in collecting some of these data uh, almost useless because uh, we've decided not to um, um, standardize some information sources. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. I, in that case, I know that we're getting towards um, the 7.30 cutoff time and I want to be, uh, you know, conscious of everybody's time, but I do have one more question here that's uh, a pretty interesting one from Sarah Penn. And uh, Sarah Penn asks, with the many restrictions and implications of social distancing, many concerns have been raised surrounding individual mental health. Uh, so specifically for primary caregivers that uh, may no longer have the support they need or the ability to take a break from their role. Um, do you currently have any data on the rates of caregiver burnout? And if not, do you think COVID might impact these numbers? And can you talk about the availability of some resources moving forward when we're looking at, um, you know, again, this is looking at uh, mental health, primary caregivers and uh, informal caregivers and burnout. Yeah, and so um, it's a really important uh, problem and question, and it hopefully illustrates what I just said. And that is, there's no doubt that people are seeing anecdotally an uptick of uh, people reaching mental health crisis, um, needs for support, for counseling services, et cetera. Um, there's no question that's the case. Anecdotally, it's true. Because at all those different points, points of psychiatry, counseling clinics, psychiatric hospitals, we, we don't often collect similar data on patients that are receiving care. We collect different data that is kind of similar but can't be collated. We can't understand at a population level what the influence is. And when we can't understand it at a population level, then we can't control it at a population level. We can't understand it at a population level. And so where we have good systems that speak to each other, which are really important clinically from provider to provider, we can actually utilize those systems to understand group phenomenon and population level phenomenon to help us target resources. So um, mm. in this case, we're a little bit behind um, and there's no doubt there's an absolute ton of need up there. Wow, yeah, thank you. And I know I said that was the last one, but I actually do have another question here. Um, uh, from uh, Campbell190, um, from um, Sam Siassi Is that you? on Twitter. <laughs> no, that's not me. Uh, I do have a question for you. I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it until after this um, because it's, you know, it's, it's the, the big show one. So um, here's a question from a friend, um, Sam Siassi. Uh, has the question been asked about um, cover testings and why there's so many false negatives um, and about maybe antibody testings and effectiveness in comparison? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and you have me at a disadvantage. I have colleagues that um, look at that question in particular. Um, all I will tell you from secondhand knowledge, because I am not an infectious disease expert, um, is that uh, respiratory illness is very difficult to detect and it's very difficult to test for. Um, mm -hmm. And that has to do with two things. Number one, the manner in which we typically test it with uh, swabs, et cetera, are very se sensitive to the quality of the sample that you, uh, you get, which has led to um, practices where for people to be declared negative, you need to have two successive negative tests, for instance. Right. Um, and also just uh, the way in which viral load is retained in a system 
varies between respiratory illnesses and it's very difficult to understand from a test where you are in the trajectory of disease and symptoms. Um, that's the best I can do in answering your question. Um, and I'm aware of, I'm aware of some of that debate, but I'm not knowledgeable enough to, to give you a, a solid answer. Fair enough. Hey, that's no problem. Um, well, in that case, I just have one more question. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's one from myself uh, to you, Andrew. And um, it's, what do you think this means for the future dress code of academics? Because I'm concerned that we'll never wear khakis again. I think this might be a sweatpants situation that we're going to take back to the office. Can you comment on that? All I know is it's meant that we don't have to iron our shirts to be on Zooms. It just needs to be more or less ironed out or not too horrible this side up. Below it doesn't matter. Uh, the state right. of academic academia was always so low that this, this has just got to be an improvement. <laughs> All right. Well, that's beautiful. On that note, in that case, um, uh, what I'm going to do then, I'm going to um, extend a big thank you uh, to Nabil again um, for inviting um, both myself and Andrew on to come and chat today. And I'd also like to, you know, turn it over, Andrew, just in case you have anything, um, any last remarks that you'd like to to wrap things up with. No, thanks, Graham, for the discussion, and thanks, Terminal, for for inviting us. This was this was fun. Hopefully, uh, informative for those that were listening. Be safe. Yeah, that's fantastic. I had a lot of fun. So stay safe. And I think, um, you know, on that note, then let's pass it back over to, uh, to Nabil. So thanks again, Nabil, for having us. And um, yeah, stay safe out there. Thank you, Graham. And thank you, Dr. Costa. So we are thrilled to bring the Terminal Tech Talk series to you every single month. And next month, we have another amazing speaker in Alex Lazaro, who recently published a book called out innovate how global entrepreneurs are rewriting the rules of silicon valley that one will be moderated by terminal's very own clay kellogg and i will share more details with everybody who registered after the broadcast but with that uh it's a wrap and i want to thank eric for managing everything so smoothly on the live stream thanks eric and thanks everyone for joining we'll see you next month <laughs>